Heavenly Father, um, there is no one like you. And Lord, I'm so thankful tonight. I, I know I'm not alone for just the, the gift and the blessing, Lord, of your spirit. Lord, thank you for your desire for us. Thank you, Lord. So unworthy and yet, Lord, so overwhelmed with the truth. You're jealous for us. You, you desire us. You so much so, Lord, that you have bridged, Lord, heaven and earth to reach us. That, Lord, you have given all that you have and all that you are through Jesus, your Son, our Savior, and that, Lord, you've not left us with just simple promises and propositional truth, but, Lord, you've, you've poured out your Spirit to not only, Lord, be upon us, to not only be near to us, but, Lord, to take up residence in us as you claim us as your own. Lord, tonight we, we taste this and we find it to be so good. And, Lord, I just ask that as we move with you into your word, that, Lord, just as we've affirmed and celebrated and glorified the fact that you are an all-consuming fire. And, Lord, I pray that uh, we would be willing and eager, Lord, to submit to you tonight as you burn away. Lord, what remains of our resistance, what remains of our idols, what remains, Lord, of, of distractions, what remains, Lord, of territory in our hearts and our minds that, that the enemy, Lord, has uh, tried to infiltrate and sway to his advantage and work. Lord, I, I just pray that we would say yes to everything that you have for us tonight, knowing, Lord, that... Uh, you will work all for good as you do so perfectly. And Lord, that you bring us closer and give us greater vision and clarity, greater courage and faith, Lord, as we move forward into a future with you. I, I pray all of these things, Lord. We pray all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Oh, thanks, Bo. <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, folks, um, it's nice to see some familiar faces tonight, um, and uh, if any of you are kind of coming back, maybe from some time away, or, or maybe you're visiting um, tonight, I'm Mark Patterson. Um, I've had the uh, privilege and the blessing and also the uh, uh, deep anxiety and terrifying feelings of, uh, of having the chance to preach for two Sundays in a row, but it's been wonderful. I'm, I'm grateful to God. I'm grateful to Stonebridge and all y'all for uh, um, allowing me to serve in this way. Um, Pastor David uh, Eldridge and Mary Margaret, his wife, and, and the kids are, are away for a few weeks getting some wonderful, we pray, uh, rest and refreshment and all that stuff and, and kind of gearing up to return to us soon. Um, we have been studying, as many of you all know, the book of 1 Samuel and working our way through that. We completed chapter 13 last week, and, and we're transitioning into chapter 14 this week. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14. And the text that we're going to be looking at tonight is, uh, will be on the screen as well. All right. So 1 Samuel 14, beginning... 
in verse 1. It says, One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was a son of Ichabod's brother Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. Let's pause for just a second. There's a number of names and some stuff there that we do well to not real quickly overlook. Many of us will remember that because of Saul's refusal in many ways to put his faith in the Lord and instead to, to turn to self-reliance and what seemed right in his own eyes, through Samuel the prophet, Saul had been told by God that you know, under those conditions, Saul was unfit to be his king. He was unfit to lead the people in the, the truth and the knowledge and the understanding that God is still God. The people, in a faithless way, may have rejected God as their king and asked for a human king like Saul. But you know, the truth remained that God was still God. And even though in, in sin they had asked for a king... Almost as a substitute for God, God still made a promise to them that he would not leave them. He would not forsake them so long as they remembered him and looked to him. And that promise was for Saul and all the people, but that truth still remained. And Saul was still hard-hearted. But what's interesting here in the passage is is that the, the priest that Saul is leaning on is like unto Saul in that this Eli that's mentioned here, who we encountered earlier in 1 Samuel, was a priest who also um, operated in, in self-reliance and, and was not faithful to the Lord. And, and God had also removed from him the priesthood and from his progeny you know, the priesthood as well. And so we've got a really interesting situation. We've got a very self-reliant king walking in really a hard-heartedness toward the Lord, but also now leaning on a deposed priesthood. Um, just an interesting situation, something to be aware of. Now, verse 4, it says, On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes. By the way, Bozes means slippery. And the other, Senna, which actually means thorny. That'll come up later, so just make a note of that. Uh, one cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, and the other to the south towards Geba. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come then. We will cross over toward the men and let them see us. And if they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up. Because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. 
the men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan. And his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about a half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field, and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's outlooks at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. And then Saul said to the men who were with him, Muster the forces and see who has left us. And when they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God. And at that time it was with the Israelites. And while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Quick note. Again, just really important for us to observe this. We've got a moment where Saul calls for the ark of God. This, this ark which was represented the very presence of God among his people. And he also turns to Ahijah, this deposed priest, and he says, bring the ephod. And, and the, the, typically what we do is if one was genuinely seeking the Lord and genuinely seeking the Lord's direction, there were uh, the, the names I'm going to butcher, and I don't want to do that, but there were basically what amounts to a kind of a, a lots or dice, if you will, that, that were in the ephod. And God had actually given this as a way to seek God's direction and to seek the Lord. But it's interesting here, what does Saul ask Ahijah to do? As this tumult is going on, again, there's this moment where it seems as though Saul is turning to the Lord for direction and guidance, but he asks Ahijah to hold his hand, to stay his hand, to not reach in. And, and in a way, it's yet another example of Saul rejecting this notion of truly seeking the Lord and instead looking around him and making a decision to take matters back into his own hands, to do what seems right, again, in his own eyes under the circumstances. So verse 20 says, Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And when all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So the Lord rescued Israel that day. And the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. I think if we just take a, a quick look at our text, a lot of the emphasis here is on Jonathan. And, and we're definitely going to take a close look at that. But for just a moment, I want to pull back and kind of take one more look at Saul, kind of through a bit of a wide-angle lens and, and see some things that I think God would have us See, you know, between chapter 13 and chapter 14, we've got this situation where Saul, Jonathan, 600 terrified Israeli soldiers are on the, the edge of mutiny. They've got, as incredible as it seems, they've got two swords between them against an army that's so vast they can't be numbered. And with an arsenal, a military arsenal that's unlike anything that they had seen. And we ask ourselves, and I think God provokes the question, and that is, 
How did we get here? What was the, the path, that, that ugly path that led to this kind of a state of things? And what we see is that path is kind of littered with example after example of, of King Saul's self-reliance and pride at the expense of faith in God. Now last week, you know, we affirmed that God didn't choose Saul to fail and, and God didn't set Saul up for failure. We also acknowledge that, you know, there's been a lot of Good debate, worthwhile debate in the church among teachers and, and Bible scholars and others about how do we understand the sovereignty of God? How do we understand that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present? He is the perfect one, and He knows the end from the beginning. How do we reckon with the fact that that Saul goes down this horrible path. And by the way, folks, if the picture seems a little ugly now, just hang in there as we move through 1 Samuel because it gets uglier, unfortunately. And so we ask, why would God select Saul knowing that this would be the outcome of things? In fact, we may even ask, did God fail in his choice of Saul? Well, folks, I... Personally, I believe with all of my heart that in no way do we diminish God or we diminish his sovereignty when we consider that God never chose anyone to fail. That God never meant for anyone, for God so loved the world and all of us in it, that he would choose to have someone's life itself be an example of failure. And that he would elect someone to that. I mean, if that be true, then what leaves us with any hope for ourselves? What if we are elected to failure? What if the purpose of our lives is to be nothing more than an example of what not to do to those that are elected for success or elected for favor around us? There's just all kinds of problematic things as we walk down that trail. Rather, when we look carefully at the Scriptures, we see that even with Saul, God gives Saul every opportunity to say no to himself and yes to God. To trust more in God than himself. God gives Saul Samuel. God gives Saul his spirit. God gives Saul his promises through Samuel. God gives Saul, even in the midst of all the mess that was created by his trusting more in himself than in God. Even at this point, God gives Saul the opportunity to to open his eyes and to see how he got there. And to own it. To take responsibility. To do as we say in the church. To confess. And to repent. And to turn back to God. And yet still, Saul says no. Now at this point, it would be very easy for us. I think of the times I've done it over and over again when I've come to God's Word. But it would be easy for us to wrap up by slapping kind of a faithless label on Saul. Giving thanks that Saul ain't us. And then kind of moving on, comforting ourselves, saying, God, you got to have a different path for me. You know, that doesn't necessarily apply to my heart or my mind. But... For a moment, I just want us to engage in a little bit of reflection. And I want to ask, 
you a question, ask me a question, and it's this. What would you say are your best attributes? What would you say are your greatest strengths? And actually, as you reflect on that a little bit, I want you to go back as far as you can. And I want you to go back to a time when you began to discover some things about yourself. And you began to get some feedback by others around you about the things you were good at. Maybe you were the tallest one in class. Maybe you were handsome or or told you were pretty. Or maybe you were the fastest one on the at recess, on the playground, or or maybe you were the one in the classroom who was sharpest. You got it quickly, and it came easy to you, and you were the one that got the A. It seemed like other people struggled. And again, not only did you kind of find that out about you, and it wasn't anything that you really earned. It wasn't anything that you really kind of worked for. It was just this sort of these things that you started to learn about yourself, and other people could very easily notice them too. And would, you know, kind of glory in them a bit. I mean, you know, kind of reinforce that you notice that not only were they kind of good for you, but it seemed that they also were the very things that attracted others to you. Things that were kind of more easily seen and easily celebrated and reinforced for you. Now, for those of us that know Christ and walk in a relationship with Him, at this point we may very quickly recognize, hey, you know, those qualities in me, those capacities, those things that are kind of, you know, make me me in that regard, those, those are gifts from God. But I, I want to ask you to go a little deeper. What I want us to do is examine our hearts along these lines. How often have you considered those things about you? Those things which... You know, you have um, delighted in and others have, have caused others to delight in you. Have you experienced the allure of those qualities? Have you experienced the power of them? Have you experienced the, the benefits of them? You know, I think I find as we get older and as we exercise those capacities, if you will, more and more, they end up becoming the things that show up like on our resume or or they're often the things that we will put forward in our first meetings with people. They're, They're things that, you know, we want folks to know because, you know, we live in a world where those things, those qualities, those strengths, those attributes are sought after. They are glorified. They are lifted up as things that we need to be able to get that job, to make that impression, to, to, to get that promotion, and, and on and on, to, to finish that education, to, to be tops in this, or to make our mark in that, or to accomplish that goal. But let me also ask you this question for just a minute. What would happen in you And what would happen in your relationships with others at work or at home or among those that you walk with? What would happen if a few of those strengths or gifts were were threatened or, or worse yet, what if all of them were taken away? What impact would that have on you 
What impact would that have on how other people see you? What impact would that have on the relationship you have with others and maybe what kind of fabric makes up those ties with others? What would happen? You know, Saul had these qualities. Saul, in fact, God himself puts these qualities of Saul right out there in front of us for us to see, for us to know, and for us to examine. And quite frankly, these qualities of Saul were very evident to him, and they were very evident to everybody that met him in all Israel. In fact, the scriptures say very clearly Saul had a striking appearance. Saul was head and shoulders taller than anyone else in Israel, the Word of God says. And not only that, but when Saul showed up, his his handsomeness, his features were so striking that, again, it drew people to him. This was not something Saul was oblivious to. It was something that was very, very evident to him and very evident to others. Saul also came from a very reputable family. The Scriptures say that his father's name was Kish, and Kish was a very well-respected a noble, successful, well-thought-of man within the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul was his son. And Saul was born into that position. He was born into that status. And I'm sure, again, it was something that Saul knew well, probably from an early age, and it's something that the whole tribe around him knew as well. I mean, in essence, Kish and Saul and the family, they were big fish in a small pond. Benjamin was the smallest tribe in all Israel, but they were prominent in the tribe. Then also, Saul makes it clear that he felt as though he had something to prove. I mean, do you remember when Samuel, in that one-on-one experience, Samuel reveals to Saul that his family has been chosen and favored. God has great things for them. And he, he tells Saul, Saul, God has set you apart to be king of his people, Israel. And what does Saul say in response? He says, how in the world can that be? He says, I am from the least clan in the smallest tribe of Israel. Again, don't miss it. You know, when we see things like that, God is putting that forward for us. He wants us to notice that, to take that in. And there's a sense here in which Saul was about to become a big fish in a very big pond at very least in his own mind. And there's a sense in which Saul was motivated by having a sense of proving something, that he was an effective king, that he was a respectable king. And that image in the eyes of the people around him was something that was extremely important to Saul. Now about us. You know, our natural gifts... The, the strengths, those capacities, those things we're born with or that we're born into, those qualities that the world around us very quickly and very powerfully celebrates, often become the thing that we value the most, the thing that we nurture the most, the, the parts about us that we rely on the most, and also the parts about us that when threatened or competed against or... or at risk of even being taken away or disrespected. These are often the things that we protect the most. But these things can very easily, quickly, and deceptively become false gods for us. That if we're facing a situation where they could be taken from us, 
we do go through a kind of crisis. And we would do well to look at it as a crisis of faith. Because we all have faith. What matters is what it's anchored to. What matters is what its object is. And the truth of the matter is in that moment, in that crisis, we have to ask a question. And that is this. Have we begun to be those who worship the gifts we've been given? Or are we worshiping and trusting in the giver of those gifts? So before we label and leave Saul too quickly, we may want to consider that in all actuality, Saul is not at a distance from us. God does not mean for us to create a gap in our minds and in our hearts between us and Saul. I think God lays Saul before us that we might see ourselves. I mean, yes, it's true. I mean, Saul had this massive calling. And the stakes were extremely high. And God could not tolerate a man who would walk in self-reliance and in faith in his gifts rather than the giver because there was too much at stake, you see. And so the consequences were real, but in reality, God ultimately, as we will see more and more as we move through the text and go on through 1 Samuel, we're going to see that what God really does is just ultimately gives Saul over to the desire of his heart. Even when all the while there was still the opportunity for confession and repentance. And then there's Jonathan. <laughs> Jonathan is young. I mean, Jonathan is, is inexperienced in comparison to most others around him. Jonathan seems... Foolish, but I'll tell you what, we have no better example of a fool for God, a faithful fool, than Jonathan. You know, if what the world around us calls great can become a stumbling block to faith in God, then God would have us know this, that what the world calls foolish, small, weak, worthless, impossible, laughable, Idiotic can become for us our greatest gifts and greatest opportunities when we offer them by faith to God. Jonathan, if we look carefully at our text and pay attention, Jonathan seems to abandon reason. I mean, all human reason. And he even abandons his very life. To faith in God's ability to save, as we saw, whether by many or by few. Just as Abraham, you know, way past the age of childbearing, here's God promise, you're going to have a child. You and Sarah are going to have a child. And how does Abraham respond? He, he believes God. He believes the impossible. He becomes a fool for the Lord. Um, did you already throw up that picture, Jillian? Yeah, that is not Jonathan. Um, <laughs> that is uh, Leonidas, the, uh, the high commander of the Spartan army from the movie 300, one of my favorite movies. However, when I saw this picture, I, I could not help but think of Jonathan. You know, the, the fierceness of his faith in God, the boldness 
of that faith, God puts before us for a a very, very important reason. So let's look. Let's look at what God shows us about Jonathan in contrast with Saul. By faith, Jonathan and his armor bearer with one sword move against a Philistine outpost of unknown numbers. In the description in the Word of God about this whole situation, there's something we've got to understand. From, from the place where Jonathan and his armor bearer begin to where they're headed to to engage the enemy, is uh, they're at low ground. The enemy is at high ground. Yes, Jonathan and the armor bearer knew that this was a Philistine outpost. So this was not a place where the massive Philistine army were, were encamped. This is where a smaller group, but there was no way for them to know how many were there. All they knew was that there were two of them and there was one sword and an unknown number of enemy that they were about to engage. But this is what they knew. They knew they had one God who could and would make all the difference. And by faith, they engage the enemy. By faith, Jonathan does this in secret, incognito, if you will. And one of the quick conclusions we can come to is that in light of the fact that Saul is cowering under a pomegranate tree with 600 terrified soldiers trying to scheme and figure stuff out on his own and kind of trying to, how in the world are we going to deal with all of this? That it's likely Saul would not have sanctioned Jonathan's move. So yes, Jonathan slips out without permission or knowledge, but I think there's something much more about this in secret part. Jesus taught us about this principle when he said in Matthew chapter 5, in the, the Sermon on the Mount, it's actually, I think it's chapter 6, in which we see this. But Jesus said, when you pray, when you give to others, I want you to do it how? In secret. Because in secret, it will be done before your Heavenly Father. We're in position in secret to do it rightly motivated, to do it by faith rather than for show. There were way too many religious people at the time who were praying and who were giving only when there was a crowd. And only when they could prop up those qualities and prop up before others their status and their position and all for the purpose of what? I mean, were they in actuality giving as a, an act of faith before the Lord? Were they praying with a true and genuine heart to the Lord? No, it was, it was just another way of feeding and fueling where their real faith lie and what they really valued the most. And here Jonathan does this in secret. To Jonathan, there was only an audience of one. And that's all that mattered. You know, practically speaking, we might say, man, if you are two guys, one sword, and you're engaging an unknown number of enemy, it's good to have a crowd. At the very least, you can say, hey, we need help. Come on in and join us because we're probably not going to be able to do this. But that wasn't even in Jonathan's thinking. God was enough for Jonathan. And having an audience of one in this circumstance was a perfect place to be to exercise his faith in God. By faith, Jonathan climbs through two cliffs 
And I encourage you, resist the temptation to kind of wax into kind of the, the area of analogy. There's a reason why these two mountains or cliffs were called slippery and thorny. It's because they were. They were. That first pass was, in fact, slippery. That second pass was, in fact, thorny. And I want you to consider that for a minute. Between where they were and where they believed they would go by faith in God, what was between them? Obstacles. Obstacles that, again, could very easily cause us to turn back. It makes sense. These obstacles must be a sign that this isn't what we should be doing. But instead, Jonathan doesn't even give it a second thought. For him, by faith, he would face those. They would climb slippery, and they would climb thorny, and they would get from here to there. What's also kind of foolish and crazy about that is what kind of a condition, if they're thinking about it, and they're thinking about military strategy and all that stuff, what kind of condition are they likely to be in when they get past slippery and thorny, and they're ready to engage the enemy? In their minds, they're likely to be tired. In their minds, they're likely to not be in a good state to be able to to do this thing. But again, this is a step of faith. A step that let the world and let all human reason call this impossible, call this foolish, call this stupid, call this terrible strategy. None of that seems to matter to Jonathan because his trust is in the Lord as God. And God can help him breach any obstacle on his way to the goal. By faith, Jonathan chooses a sign from God that, again, is kind of ridiculous. I don't know about you, but if if I'm actually putting something before God and I'm asking him to confirm something, and I'm standing there in that moment, I'm saying, okay, God, if they do this, that's the confirming sign that you're in this. And if they do this... Stay there. (laughs) Don't come up here. That probably means what? They're not ready to engage me. They're a little concerned. They're kind of second-guessing themselves. Wouldn't that be the sign that I'd want to have? It's okay, now we go, right? But instead, it's the opposite of that. It it doesn't make sense. No, if they say to us, come on up here, (laughs) we'll teach you a lesson. No, that will be the sign. Again, it's, it's, it's a gift. Jonathan is making decisions that put maximum dependence on God and minimal dependence on himself. And he does it consciously. You know what I mean? He does it intentionally. And it's astounding. And a glorious example for us of faith. And by faith, last thing, guys, you understand, it says right here in the Scriptures that when they attack the enemy... The enemy is on high ground, and they are on low ground. Now, I don't know. I don't know if you're into military stuff. You're into reading books and historical fiction and other kinds of things about battles and things. But I'll tell you what. If you're into that, and I'm kind of into that, you read that 99.9% of the time, whichever side has the high ground, what? Wins. And if you've got the low ground... You're done. In fact, that's the very reason to disengage. Retreat, wait, try to reposition because you're going to lose. But in this case, Jonathan and his armor bearer on low ground. And here's the other crazy thing. In order to engage the enemy from the low ground, what do they have to do? That way is so steep that they have to climb up using both their hands and their feet. 
I don't know about you, but if you have to climb up something that steep and you've got one sword between the two of you, again, how advantageous and powerful a position are you going to be when you finally get to the top where the enemy is waiting right at the precipice, waiting for you, if they're smart? What chance do you have? You've got no chance at all. And yet again, by faith, Jonathan does this very thing. God has to come through. Because this isn't about us. But this is about the power and the glory and the ability of God, not the power and the glory and the ability of us. And what happens? What happens? They get to the place. And God shows up and moves beyond anything they could think or imagine, yet by faith alone. There were 20 there. And with a very swift blow, God empowers Jonathan the armor bearer to take those 20 out. And then God moves ahead of them by His Spirit to supernaturally cause such a fear to spread through the hundreds of thousands, perhaps, of Philistines and create such confusion among them, all sparked by this act of faith, foolish faith in God, that they destroy themselves. And in the process, God begins to rally and revive and return Israel back as God moves before them to do something amazing. What about us? What about us? You know, if God doesn't mean... For us to too quickly slap labels and too quickly just take in the information of these passes and just passages and just move on, then perhaps God means for us to linger a while and to trust God enough to allow Him to put before us Saul and to put before us Jonathan. And I, I want to remind us of something else. Jesus had so much to say, I believe, about this principle. Jesus spoke about the wide way, the common way, the majority way of the world that leads to destruction. And it's many, many, many who go that way. And he speaks about the narrow way that leads to life. And in so many ways, these two paths, the the path of Saul, the path of Jonathan are a reflection of that. You know, as, as often as we want to label Saul and kind of distance ourselves from him, the truth of the matter is that we live in this world. We live in this place of the wide way, if you know what I mean. And we can't live here and be here and be born into it without it affecting us. The truth of the matter is that for all of us, we face these challenges. All of us were born with capacities and strengths and attributes and assets. Every single one of us and every single one of us face the temptation to rely more on those things and to rely more on other people's opinions of us than we do upon the Lord. For many of us, we are taught and trained over long periods of time from an early age to attach our identity and to attach our worth and our value to these things. But trusting in these things, <laughs> leaning upon self-reliance, will destroy us. And then there's Jonathan. 
this crazy, crazy, ridiculous Jonathan. You know, um, listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23 through 25, he said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. He says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world but, but lose his soul? And, and in contrast to that, we see in Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, it says, now faith. Faith isn't being sure of what we see. It isn't being sure of what we know about ourselves. It isn't, faith isn't about being confident in how other people see us. It isn't about anchoring ourselves to the things we're good at and making sure that we only do things we think we're strong in so that we can be effective or make a difference. No, faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we don't see. And then it goes on to say, this is what the ancients, this is what Jonathan was commended for. You know, for many of us, as we take time now and we move into worship, you know, I, I just believe that, that God is lovingly, passionately wanting to have us yield to him this evening and to let him take us on a little bit of a journey into our hearts and into our minds and into some self-examination, as scary as that is. But I, I ask you, trust the Lord. Let him reveal these things to you. Let him reveal the object of your faith. Let him reveal the ways in which the enemy has been successful over a long period of time in, in getting you, maybe not in all ways, all the time, but definitely in a lot of ways, in significant times, to trust more in yourself, to trust more in what you know, to trust more in what you can do, to trust more in what, how other people see you than you trust in the Lord. And let him burn that away. Gloriously, wonderfully, perfectly, lovingly, burn that away. But then there's some of us who have had this notion that God is calling you into something. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely insane. It makes absolutely no sense. You've even sat down and you have tried to list off pros and cons. You've used every strategy you know to have it make sense in a way you can understand by your own reasoning and thinking. But it doesn't. But I'll tell you this, it won't go away. It's still there before you and you can't shake it. Boy, howdy, do I encourage you to consider Jonathan. So as we go into worship now, as Bo comes up, and as we just present ourselves to the Lord and respond to his invitation, I want to leave you with one more thought. It seems to me that it would be easy to just to look at Saul and Jonathan as examples to us and, and look at the ways they went as just ways before us that we 
should not go or should go. But there's something else that the Lord impressed upon me this morning, and it was this. For those of us that are in Christ, in this glorious place that God has us at this time in human history, for those of us that are are in Christ and have trusted Jesus, Jesus is our Jonathan. Jesus has gone before us. And what Jesus asks of you and asks of me is for us to be his armor bearer. He's asking if we will respond like that, where we will say to him, I'm with you, Lord, heart and soul. And no matter where we're going, and no matter what path you forge through slippery and thorny and to engage whatever enemy, you are enough. And you have gone before me. And you've faced all the obstacles. And you have faced the enemy. And Jesus has won. Our faith has an anchor. It is there. And it is Jesus Christ our Lord. Consider that as he speaks to you. Consider that as he's calling you into something crazy. Consider that Jesus is right there before you asking you to trust him. And move into it, no matter how crazy it seems, by faith in Him. Move.